Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cave of the Cross Apologetics. I am Patrick. And I'm Tony. And uh, we're in the midst of chapter six of our book of Faith Has Its Reasons, and where you've been looking at the uh, classical approach, and we've covered kind of uh, what they've uh, what they've said about um, uh, d- different answers that each uh, apologetic method has to answer. And so we're in the midst of how does uh, how does the classical uh, apologist then uh, show that the existence of God is uh, either possible or real or uh, self-evident, rational. Uh, rational. Yeah. And so, right. how 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 uh, how do they approach this type of question uh, that uh, that uh, will be asked of of any apologist? And so, uh, there are six main questions, and so we're in the midst of our, our third one here. And so uh, we've uh, we've um, kind of talked about the the moral argument and the ontological argument, and now what we're going to get into is the cosmological argument. And so um, here, uh, the cosmological argument reasons from the nature of the world as temporal, right, uh, that exists in time, and contingent. Uh, you know, it didn't just pop into. Uh, uh, being from nothing, that uh, there are certain uh, elements that it must meet in order for it to uh, exist and to, to continue to exist. So that it that the the nature of the world is temporal and contingent. To the conclusion, then, that an exter an, an eternal and necessary being must exist. So right. Uh, so so the idea here is that the world is dependent, or at least nature or the universe is contingent that is dependent on something else mm-hmm. for its existence. And of course, this thing that it's dependent on is a necessary being that must exist, right? So that's that's the idea here. Right. So, you know, and again, uh, you know, as we mentioned in our last episode, there's this two-step approach that the classicalists are, are taking here. First, they want to prove that God exists or theism is true, and then they want to move to Christianity as the, you know, the, the most reasonable approach with regard to theism. Right. Right. So proponents argue that if anything uh, now exists, something must be eternal or else something not uh, eternal must have emerged from nothing. Since the notion of something emerging emerging from an absolute nothing is generally considered absurd, the principal options that are that either the universe is eternal or it is the product of an eternal and necessary being uh, must be the case. And so uh, you 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 have. um, people writing books of the universe came from nothing. And then you read the book and you go, well, it, it, nothing doesn't mean like absolutely nothing because <laughs> there has to be something for it to pop into existence. Or there are these, these, uh, uh, this vacuum that exists and, and these particles uh, suddenly appear out of nowhere. Well, not really nowhere. I mean, they, they come from a different plane of existence, but you know, so that that's how you be, be able to write, uh, you know, a thousand page words on nothing actually have it be something <laughs> about something so yeah that's what you so can they, do <laughs> there you go so notice the choices here is uh either um you know as uh, everything uh has always existed right or everything has come from nothing those are your choices right and so that's kind of where the cosmological argument kind of begins right that the idea here is that it's kind of absurd to assume that something came from nothing or everything came from nothing. And so there must be something that is eternal that's always existed. And we know it's not the universe because it's, or the, you know, the whatever, because it's dependent on something else for its existence. And so there is an eternal being. 
And so one form of uh, reasons from the fact of it being uh, beginning of the universe uh, for the universe to exist, it needs a beginner. So this argument is known as the Kalam cosmological argument and was first developed by medieval Muslim philosophers. Uh, it has recently, in the last uh, 20, 30 years or so, has been articulated by William Lane Craig. The, the Kalam argument is essentially a philosophical deductive proof. So this is not an induction, right? A probability argument. It's a deductive proof. And so Craig offers uh, kind of a real simple form of this argument. It goes something like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe begins to exist. And therefore, the universe has a cause. Mm -hmm. Now, he goes on further and he has to show, you know, that this cause of the universe is really the Christian God. But his first step is just to get to this particular cause that the universe has to have a cause because it is contingent it had a beginning. And, uh, and then he goes on from there. Right. Right. So out of the two steps, this is his first step here. Yeah. Craig argues that the first premise is intuitively obvious and should be accepted without trying to base it on something else. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Think about something that has come up in your life or uh, the traffic accident or the building. Well, that thing didn't just happen. It, it, it had a cause. There were people right. that built it. There was a car that crashed into it. Well, then what happened before that? Well, the car uh, uh, left the driveway and didn't look. Uh, the person got in the car <laughs> so we can go back and back and back until we come to this kind of first cause. Yeah, or we can even make it easier, right? Think of yourself, <laughs> right? You didn't just always exist. There was yeah. a cause of your existence, your parents, and the cause of their existence, their parents, and, and so forth, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> He then defends the second premise on both philosophical and scientific grounds. His principal argument here is a philosophical argument based on the improbability of a temporary infinity past. The universe began to exist. And uh, I, I, I always I think it's a, a, a case for a creator with Lee Strobel that he's interviewed in there. And he does a masterful job of, of talking about the impossibility of an actual infinite. So uh, I think he does it through hotel rooms. But I just like the idea of thinking, well, in order for us to get to this time and this place, infinity would have had to happen. Well, have we had infinity time? Well, no, but we're at this place right here and now. So therefore, an infinity time didn't have to happen. And you could go up from this point forward. Is there an end of time? Absolutely, because if it goes off into infinity, we could never progress in time. Well, guess what? From the start of when I was starting this weird explanation, we've gotten to this point, the end, period. <laughs> And look, yeah. we've traversed, we've traversed a time period. And so therefore, at least as far as, as time or the universe, it doesn't seem to be an actual infinite. So uh, right. that's and, what and, he does here. And and Craig uh, uses the the hotel, you know, he calls yeah. it Hilbert's hotel yeah. based on a mathematician, you know, <laughs> Hilbert. And yeah, he argues that it's, it's incoherent, as you mentioned here, right, to, to posit an actual infinite that really exists, right? He says we can have a mathematical construct, right, of infinity right. that we can use to make mathematical equations and that sort of thing. But an actual infinite in reality, he argues, is a incoherent concept. Right. Right. So he says that the idea of time extending backwards infinitely, uh, which what is known as an infinite regress, though an actual infinite series of moments or events is said to be inherently irrational. Therefore, an 
A priori philosophical grounds, this argument concludes that the universe must have had a beginning. So at least very step one, the universe has a beginning. Therefore, it seems like we have to go to our first point. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. And what is that cause? Who is that cause? There you go, right? And so although the Kalam argument as originally formulated is a deductive philosophical proof, Craig and other classical apologists supplement this rather abstract argument with the scientific evidence. Notice that the universe had a beginning. So not only does he use a philosophical proof, you know, that uh, the impossibility of an actual infinite series of things, but also he uses scientific evidence, as he sees it, to show that the universe mm-hmm. actually had a beginning, right? right? The argument here is based on the virtual consensus among all cosmologists that this beginning occurred in what is called the Big Bang. Right. And so it has to be pointed out that even if a series of big bangs were postulated for for which there's really no evidence, it is clear that the universe would not oscillate through such a series from eternity. So there it is. He has a philosophical proof with regard to the impossibility of an actual infinite number of things or events and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And he has scientific evidence based on the cosmological position of the Big Bang to show that the universe began to exist. And of course, then, you know, logically, then it shows that if it began to exist, uh, then um, it had to have a cause. Right. And so that's how he gets to his conclusion. Right. Right. So he uses both space and time as as pointing to uh, a, a single point in time where the universe started. And so here then opponents have raised the variety of objections to these arguments. For example, they claim that reasoning from the finite temporal or uh, contingent nature of all things in the universe to the conclusion that the universe itself is finite, temporal and contingent commits the fallacy of composition. Well, the fallacy occurs when the attributes of the parts are attributed to the whole. For example, it would be a mistake to reason from the premise that all atoms are invisible to the conclusion that all physical objects, since they are comprised of atoms, should also be invisible. Well, how, how do I stop from myself from falling to the floor? Well, you know, as, unless if I'm the, the flash and I can vibrate my atoms so that I can <laughs> fall through it, uh, that's not happening. So, you know, here, atoms just empty space. So how am I how am I existing on this plane of existence? Well, OK. And, and you know, we should ask that for ghosts as well. How, how does ghosts <laughs> glide across the floor if they're incorporeal? Well, all right. We'll have to we'll have to wait for that one. <laughs> or ask Casper himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe he's, maybe he's just the ghost version of the Flash. <laughs> well, one answer to this obje- objection is the arguments appealing to composition are often valid. For example, if all the pieces of a puzzle are red, well, the puzzle as a whole will also be red. So just because it might not apply doesn't mean it necessarily applies. There you go, right? So notice the idea here is this fallacy of composition uh, is oftentimes overcome because it's true, right? <laughs> that, that the things that make up the, the components of a whole thing are indeed that the whole thing has the characteristics of those components, right? So it may not work with invisibility with regard to atoms, but it does work in other respects, as as uh, you've mentioned here with the, or as our authors mentioned here with the red pieces of puzzle, right? So sometimes, the uh you know the fallacy of composition is not a fallacy right mm-hmm. it's it's the way things actually are 
another objection is that the argument begs the question by assuming what it sets out to prove, right? So the the uh, Kalam uh, argument in particular is often criticized for reasoning from the inconceivability of an actual infinite series to its non-existence, right? We can't conceive of an actual infinite, and therefore it doesn't exist, right? That's the claim here against the Kalam uh, argument, right? It is. It's, it suggests that what seems inconceivable to the human mind is not necessarily um, uh, exists. But the Kalam argument doesn't uh, buy that, right? The defenders of this form of uh, cosmological argument typically respond that the issue is not subjective inconceivability, right? What one person's mind can conceive, but objective irrationality, whether the concept is rationally coherent, right? So notice it's not, I can't conceive of it and therefore... I, you know, it doesn't exist, right? That would be kind of a subjective, mm -hmm. uh, you know, approach here. But he, the claim here is that it's objective irrationality. So let's take, for example, a four-sided triangle. Well, I can't conceive of a four-sided <laughs> triangle, right? Why? Well, because it's rationally incoherent. Mm -hmm. So you can't conceive of it, right? And so that's the kind of thing that the Kalam, uh, defenders of the Kalam cosmological argument attempt to show. It's it's not this subjective inconceivability. It's really rational incoherence with regard to an objective, irrational type of uh, inconceivability. Mm -hmm. Right, right. All right, well... We proved the existence of God <laughs> from the classical. Now yeah. we go back to our good friend, the problem of evil. Well, here, the classicalist uses the deductive problem of evil. The problem of evil has been used by such thinkers as David Hume, H.G. Wells, Bertrand Russell to challenge the rationality of belief in the existence of an omnipotent and benevolent God. Theists believe that the problem is solvable since the events we condemn and the moral law by which we condemn them are both traceable to the same source, capital S, source. Well, who are we going to point to? Yeah, right. So <laughs> so historically, the problem, that is the problem of evil, has commonly been set in, uh, forth formally as an apparent contradiction among three propositions often called the inconsistent triad. Right? And so here they are. God is all loving. Right? God would eliminate evil if he could because he's all loving or perhaps all good, and so he doesn't want evil, right? Secondly, God is all-powerful, and so God could eliminate evil if he wanted to. He's powerful, and so he's loving and good. He doesn't want evil, and he's all-powerful. He could eliminate evil if he wanted to. And third, then, the third uh, piece here is that evil indeed does exist, and so God does not eliminate evil. Mm -hmm. And so those kind of three uh, you know, propositions here, are considered inconsistent in some way. They can't all be true. That's the right. idea. Right. If he is all loving and good, he would eliminate evil. And if he's all powerful, he can eliminate evil, but evil exists. So something is wrong, says the atheist. And the atheists obviously point to the idea that, well, then that type of God doesn't exist. Right, right. So, so which is a Christian? Do you want God not to be all loving? Do you want him not to be all powerful? Do you want evil not to exist? Or do you want God not to exist? So yeah. 
heads I win, tails you lose type deal. And this is something that we, uh, of course, did cover in uh, What About Evil with Scott Christensen, uh, because I think his book covers pretty much everything. <laughs> and so uh, so this should be familiar for those um, that have, have listened in on, on that book as well. Well, the problem has uh, listed a number of the, uh, theodicies or explanations for the occurrence of evil in the word world made by God. But classical apologists agree that there uh, that that these three propositions are not incompatible or inconsistent with one another. In essence, there are five logically distinguishable responses to the problem. One may, one, deny that God exists, which is atheism. Two, deny that God is all loving, which is dualism. Three, deny that God is all powerful, which is finitism. And four, deny that evil exists, which is illusionism. Or five, affirm that all three are propositions in list above are true, and there you have theism. The strategy used by classical apologists is to criticize proposed theodicies that solve the problem by denying one of these positions, and then to show that affirming all the propositions is not irrational. Right. So, so what they do is they say, okay, well, let's take atheism, and we'll look at that in just a second here. And they say, here's the problem with the denying that God exists approach, right? And so what they try to show is that it, the, the, all three propositions can coexist without being a contradiction, mm -hmm. right? That's the basic idea here. And, um, and, and so let's, let's, let's consider atheism. It argues that an all-good and all-powerful God must not exist, because he could destroy all evil and, you know, he wouldn't want to uh, 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 and would want to destroy all evil, but he, uh, you know, he doesn't. So moreover, God is evidently cannot do the best, right? That is not have a world with evil in it. And since this is not the best of all uh, possible worlds, mm -hmm. you know, therefore God either doesn't exist or he's not able to accomplish what he wants. And therefore the traditional concept of God is not true. So that's kind of the atheistic approach, right? If he could, he would. He he. It, it's obvious he didn't, so he can't, <laughs> or he doesn't exist, right? Well, most classical apologists relate these objections to the implications of a world where moral creatures have been given the freedom to make real choices, and to the concept that if an all perfect, all powerful God does exist, there must be notice a good purpose for evil. So we have two things going there. First of all, more creatures have freedom, right? And they kind of use that to help uh, uh, support the argument against, uh, you know, the power of evil. And secondly, the idea that uh, you can have evil along with a good and powerful God uh, with, uh, because there may be a good purpose for the evil. So, you know, all, although God has not yet destroyed evil, he will do so, and in a way that leads to the best possible world. That is, although this is not the best of all possible worlds, it is the best of all possible ways to achieve the best of all possible worlds. Right. So that's kind of an approach that can be taken to deal with this. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, uh, going, the, going to the gym and, and br breaking down your muscles and, and bones and microfractures, uh, that, that's terrible. That's evil. There's no way that you could get stronger by breaking things down, except 
that's that's how they build themselves back up and build themselves back up stronger. You're able to uh, lift more chairs that impress the people at church, and that's how you find <laughs> your your wife. So I think that's how I think that's how it works. Yeah, so, something like so. That. So even yeah. evil can bring about good. So go lift chairs and chairs. Yeah, go lift chairs always, always. <laughs> the, the 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 more and in more hands possible. <laughs> the classical apologist then reasons that evil, or at least the possibility of evil, is a necessary condition and byproduct of a maximally perfect moral world. After examining the alternatives available to the theistic God, Geisler, for instance, concludes that a world with evil is a morally necessity prerequisite to the most perfect world possible. A less perfect moral world is possible, but then it would not be the most perfect moral world that is an infinitely perfect God could achieve. In brief, permitting evil is the best way to produce the best world. Right, so that's kind of their, his uh, theodicy approach and yeah. explanation for why God allows evil. That's the notion of theodicy. All right, uh, the next major question that, again, all of these questions will be posed by each, uh, from our authors to each of these various approaches, is the issue of miracles as the credentials of revelation, right? The miracles of the Bible are not incidental, but an integral part to the Christian uh, worldview and, and to Christian theism. Before the modern era, our, our authors tell us, uh, the miracles were generally viewed as contributing to the apologetic for Christianity. They were the big deals. Look, Christianity is true. Look at the miracles, right? In modern era, though, the philosophical and scientific objections raised against miracles have led to a reversal of the status of miracles in apologetics. Now, instead of citing the biblical miracles in defense of the Christian faith, our authors tell us that apologists frequently find themselves having to defend the biblical miracles and even the very possibility of miracles. Yeah. And thus, miracles have seemingly been transformed from an apologetic asset Look, it's proof we have a miracle to an apologetic liability, right? Sure. And yeah. so we want to work our way through this issue of miracles here in this section of the chapter. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, you can take the extreme way and become Peter Enns and just talk about, uh, you know, anything that's in the Bible is, is almost certainly false, except for that which gets you to salvation. Uh, but I don't know, you know, why, why take one over the other? Uh, right. but, yeah. but you, but you also see um, uh, classical apologists uh, take um, take uh, uh, different parts of the Bible and, and ascribe them to uh, different forms of of writing styles that make it non-historical to to get over that. Um, you do have some who, for the sake of like I, I guess not arguing for it and it getting in the way, but um, uh, uh, taking scripture as 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 fully true, um, and so uh, you have that uh, type of argumentation. And obviously, uh, someone like Geisler would would vehemently frown against uh, th that type of argumentation. But um, th th there there there's a number of them that I've seen uh, who just say, well, you know, arguing that the Bible is 100% real just kind of gets in the way of, of what I want to do. And so uh, we, we need to kind of shirk that off a little bit. And so, um, you know, that that uh, that can also be um, as far as miracle goes as well, just saying, well, let's just kind of talk about uh, the philosophical approach to, to this, and not so much the, the miracles portion of it. Well, Christian apologists have responded to the modern assault in a variety of ways. The uh, basic strategy taken by classical apologists has threefold. First, 
they emphasize that miracles are rational concepts in the context of a theistic worldview, right? If, if God exists, if he's able to speak the word into power or in the world into power or from, from his power, then, uh, you know, having him, uh, uh, come down and, and wipe out a city is, 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 uh, very much, uh, something that is consistent with the world he creates, or he can, uh, send a wind to, uh, to, to divide two, uh, bodies of, or a single body of water into two bodies of water. So people can walk through. There's nothing that makes that, uh, uh concept, uh, something that's just incoherent in a theistic worldview. And then second, they give special attention to answering a priori objections to miracles that are based on philosophical or scientific misconceptions. Oh, this thing can't happen because of this. Well, let's take a look at if it's actually impossible for this to happen. And third, they argue that given a theistic worldview, the miracles of the Bible do provide evidential support or confirmation for the Christian faith. Uh, you know, go look at the tomb of David. He is still there, but go look at the tomb of Jesus. He is not there. He is risen. So go. So go. Uh, we might not be able to do that 2000 years, uh, you know, in, in the future today. Uh, but at the time of writing, it did offer uh, uh, evidential support. And that's just th that uh, we still have proofs today that we can go through as well. Good. Yeah. So let's consider first the matter of the worldview context of miracles. Notice, in an atheistic or naturalistic worldview, miracles are by definition impossible because there is no reality beyond the physical universe to affect the miraculous, right? In other words, if the physical universe is all there is, then there's nothing that can, you know, uh, operate on the physical universe, and therefore miracles are by definition, they don't exist, they're impossible. So the key then to defending belief in miracles, according to classical apologetics, is to defend, as you mentioned, theism, right? If God exists, then of course, miracles are possible. So once it's understood that the universe was created by an infinite personal God who is both transcendent, right, above it and beyond it, and imminent, working within it, then the possibility that uh, this God could do miracles is a given, right? So that's mm -hmm. kind of the, the start in terms of a worldview perspective. Well, then the second aspect of the classical apology for miracles is the refutation of a a priori objection to belief in miracles based on philosophical or scientific misconceptions. For example, it is often maintained that miracles are uh, scientifically impossible, they, that they transgress or violate or contradict the laws of nature. Up is down, left is right. Uh, triangles <laughs> are, are four sides. That, that would be a miracle. Yeah. Well, apologists that uh, counter this, this is based on a misleading analogy between nature's laws and the laws of society. Uh, right. again, uh, you, you can you can make the, the apple roll off the table and if you catch it, well, you didn't just violate the, the, the principles of, of, of gravity. You, you just uh, entered into the normal uh, outcome of that and you've caught the apple. It's not yeah. a violation of it. You're, you're just assuming like, oh, well, all things fall to the ground. Well, all things fall to the ground unless it's caught, right? So right. that's just what's occurring here in this miracle of me catching an apple, which might be a miracle in and of itself. Right. And so notice biblical miracles are not anti-natural, but they're supernatural, yeah. right? You catch that God supervenes into the, uh, the situation and catches the apple. They're not uh, caused or uh, contrary to nature, but are rather caused by an agent who catches the apple, 
right? Whose transcendence nature is God. And so the laws of science are descriptive of how nature normally operates. They're not prescriptive of what must always occur, right? right? <laughs> the apple doesn't always have to fall to the ground. You can catch it, right? And so, uh, you know, they don't legislate what uh, a God who is transcendent and, you know, above space and time and and who instituted those laws in the first place, you know, they don't uh, legislate to that God what that God, God can or cannot do, right? So they yeah. are, uh, you know, they're not prescriptive. They're right. descriptive. They describe right. what happens, but they don't describe what must happen, right? And, and and you see this in science, you know, light must always travel in a straight line until a large gravitational force bends it. And so then you can bend light. Well, yes, only if this is the case. Well, there's your agent. Your agent yeah. enters into the, the, the normative process. Yes, if, if all things being equal, uh, light were to continue, uh, 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 you know, uh, unintruded, then it would continue in a straight line. However, enter in a star and now you're bending the light around that uh, oh. that position. Oh well, that's just of course that's just uh, relativity. That's that's just uh, science in action. Well, yeah, exactly. That that's what that's what uh, the classicalist is saying here as well. All right, or enter into uh, enter a brick wall, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to continue it, it must in a straight stand, line. Yeah. Right, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Well, classical apologists point out that it would require a metaphysical assumption that the universe is a system closed to any influences apart from the four-dimensional space-time continuum to maintain that the laws of nature could be uh, superseded by a higher, uh, higher principle on certain occasions. The idea of a deterministic or mechanistic universe is not scientific but metaphysical as is theism the underlying issue with respect to miracles then is whether god exists if so miracles are possible so notice here when the atheists or the scientists say miracles are impossible because we live in a uh you know a world that is uh that's entirely physical well that's that's a metaphysical claim that's not a scientific claim right, right? <laughs> and uh, and of course theism is a metaphysical claim so now we have metaphysical claims and we've gone outside the bounds of science right and so it's not a scientific claim anymore and so you can't you know claim the authority of science when you make that kind of claim it is a metaphysical or a philosophical claim that's kind of outside the bound of science and of course, theism is the same kind of claim. So you're looking at worldview uh, issues there with regard to this. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So although, uh, you know, thirdly, uh, classical apologists argue that given a theistic worldview, and this is what we were just trying to explain, the biblical miracles provide positive evidence for the truth claims of Christianity. This is because belief in God does not automatically imply an endorsement of any or all or moral claims, right? Although the reality of God's existence proves that miracles may occur, it does not prove that they have occurred, right? If it did, uh, our authors tell us, then theists would have to accept all miracle claims to all religions, or at least admit that all of them might be true. Right, right. And, you know, th that's Robin. There are some really excellent books out there. Um, uh, I believe Tim McGrew has uh, uh, talked about this and written on this, given lectures on it. So um, the, 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 the classicalists have, have responded in kind uh, to, to these uh, claims. 
Well, whether miracles have in fact occurred is a matter of history and must be determined by historical investigation. Classical apologists do not ask that biblical miracle claims be accepted uncritically. They do, however, insist that once the existence of the type of God described in the Bible is conceded, the historical evidence for miracle claims must be taken seriously. They urge that the same canons of historical criticism that are applied to other historical records be applied as well to biblical accounts without prejudicing the case with metaphysical assumptions. Once this is done, classical apologists believe that the biblical miracles will be found to be in a class by themselves and that the evidence for these miracles will be seen as compelling. So again, uh, apply, apply the same standard that we would for uh, uh, the, the existence of, of Jesus that we would apply to, um, you know, uh, uh, a Caesar. Or, yeah, you any know, other historical way. Yeah, or uh, Lincoln, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, you know, if, if, if Lincoln actually exists, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, prove to him, uh, pro- prove to me that he's here right now. Is, is, is he in the room with us? Or, uh, you know, uh, looking at what was has been written about certain um, uh, rulers in Rome happening hundreds, uh, almost thousands of years later. Uh, well, do we accept them as uh, being historically um, uh, realistic? Well, yes. Okay. So why then are we saying, well, you know, uh, 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 people were writing some 20 years after the events. How, how could they know these things? I mean, there's no way that human memory could exist that long. (laughs) Okay. But then apply it to that. Then do we take out half of the the Roman legion of, of Caesars? Well, no. Okay. So let's be consistent and therefore, uh, consistency also requires some presuppositions there. We don't have to get in that. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the last of the six questions is the issue with regard to Jesus, right? And uh, so our uh, authors entitled this section, Jesus, the Alternatives. And so having demonstrated the possibility of the supernatural, the classical apologist is ready now to defend the actuality of the biblical miracles and in particular, the claims to deity made by and about Jesus. So, for instance, Norman Geisler's argument for the deity of Christ is uh, typical of the classical approach. Uh, He basically proceeds in two steps. First, Christ claimed to be God. And then secondly, Christ proved himself to be God. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of typical of the classical approach. Yeah. Yeah. If Jesus never claimed to be God, well, then we're going to be a little bit embarrassed once we uh, uh, hit point two. So we didn't have to start with point one there. Well, an alternative form of the argument lays out that all the alternatives to the Christian view of Jesus as God and then shows that they must be rejected. The simplest form of this process of elimination argument is known as the trilemma and presents three possibilities. So this one's kind of more known uh, uh, coming from C.S. Lewis, but um, uh, 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 uh Josh McDowell has, has, has used it as well. And, uh, and so it says that Jesus really was God or Lord. Uh, Jesus knew that he wasn't God, therefore a liar, or that Jesus mistakenly thought he was God, and therefore he was a lunatic. Apologists need to say almost nothing in refutation of the second and third views, since nearly everyone recognizes Jesus to to have been, at the very least, a person of great wisdom and moral courage. This leaves as only the possibility, though, that Jesus really was God. Yeah. So Lord, lunatic or or uh, liar. Right. Right. And, and so we don't think he was a liar or a lunatic. And therefore, that just leaves the, the Lord. Right. And so we're, you know, the, the trilemma argument to be complete, however, our authors tell us 
it must take into consideration that Jesus did not right. <laughs> um, even, uh, you know, even claim to be God. So that'd be step one of Geisinger's argument. Did he claim to be God? Right? So there are two lines of reasoning by which non-Christians have denied that Jesus claimed to be God. They have either denied that he made the claims to deity reported in the Gospels, or they argued that these should be interpreted to mean something other than a claim to deity, right? So one clear alternative way to of interpreting Jesus' claims to deity is to interpret them in kind of an Eastern religious sense as a mystical, you know, <laughs> affirmations of a unity with God that all people potentially may realize. So he wasn't claiming to be the God. He was saying all people are part of God and he's just one of them, right? That right. kind of stuff. Be and perfect, so God, even as your heavenly father is perfect. Therefore, yeah. you can be perfect just like all of us are perfect. And there therefore, go, all right. of us are God. And so what uh, Peter Kreeft and others have pointed out, that there's really uh, a total <laughs> of five possible be- views of Jesus, right? And so these are the various alternatives that he calls a quintilemma. About yeah. five limits. And, and he, he had uh, eight versions. So, I mean, he, he's just always going for the extra. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. We, we appreciate that. <laughs> well, all right. Jesus claims the gospel reports the primary premise of the quintilemma. See, that is a hard word to say. Yeah. Is that the gospels report Jesus claiming to be God. Perhaps the simplest way of undercutting the argument is to dismiss the gospel reports as historically unreliable. Classical apologists appeal to the same types of evidence in defense of the Gospels as uh, and the rest of the New Testament, as do evidentialist apologists, with the aim of showing that the Gospel accounts of the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus possesses both authenticity and reliability. Positively, they point to the archaeological and secular testimony to the events recorded in the Gospels, and negatively, they emphasize that there is nothing incredible about the miracle accounts in the Gospels if the existence of God is admitted. Right. And so then, you know, what about Jesus' claims? What did they mean? Well, the second line of defense against the Christian view of Jesus as God is to argue that they really did not claim to be God in the Jewish sense, right? This is, you know, the Eastern mysticism approach, right? He really wasn't saying he was God, at least not in the Jewish sense. And so although there are various uh, heretical distortions of the biblical teaching that uh, Jesus is God, What we're concerned with here is interpretations that take Jesus's claim completely outside of professing Christian context, right? So in practice, there's really only one such interpretation, that when Jesus spoke or acted as if he were God, this was to be understood in a Eastern pantheistic way, right? A mystical sense. Uh, So that is this view of God was the kind of God is all or in all. And that's what Jesus meant by saying he was God. Well, then classical apologists have responded to the theory with a battery of arguments. Peter Kreeft and Ronald Tassili well represented the classical response when they asserted that Jesus could not have been a mystical guru for one very simple reason, because he was a Jew. And so (laughs) therefore he was going to have Jewish beliefs and Jewish presuppositions and uh, Jewish accountability and uh, a Jewish background. So that that's point one. That, that, that's a pretty big homer for, for them. Yeah, really. Well, they pointed out a number of glaring contradictions between the teaching of Judaism in general and Jesus in particular. And on the other hand, those of mystics and gurus. For instance, the Jewish belief that Jesus taught was a public faith in a personal creator 
who could be known because he had taken initiative and revealed himself. Eastern gurus taught a secret mystical experience of an impersonal divine reality in all things that is beyond knowledge, but can be experienced by those who pursue it with religious fervor. So here you have kind of Gnostic belief and Gnostic thinking, which did enter into the church, but only later, second century. And of course, Michael J. Kruger, uh, that I always have to mention, uh, has, a, has a great book on this of Christianity in the second century. Uh, and and uh, um, uh, I'll try and remember to link that below, because uh, I'm sure I've done that before as well. Yeah, good. So notice, Jesus couldn't have meant this God in, in terms of pantheism, right? Because he, he had a Jewish, he was, as you mentioned, he had a Jewish perspective, Jewish background, Jewish worldview, which is antithetical to this Eastern mysticism type of view of God is all in all. Right. So then the, lastly, the issue is, and we'll kind of end it here, uh, Jesus claims, were they true? Right. So he claimed to be God. So the issue is, were they true? So if Jesus really did claim to be God, and if he meant this in the Jewish sense of being the personal creator of the universe, then the simpler trilemma comes directly back into play. Right. Classical apologists know that if they can reduce the options to these three, liar, lunatic, or Lord, then they will have a convincing case for all but the most jaundiced, hostile opponent of Christianity. The reason is simple. Even the most avowed non-Christians are incapable of convincing themselves, let alone anybody else, right, that Jesus was a deceiver or he was demented. And uh, those really are the choices if Jesus claimed to be God and yet was merely a human being, right? So either he was uh, a liar, lunatic, or indeed he was who he claimed to be, Lord. And so uh, that's where they kind of end this. Right, right. So, um there's the positive approach uh, to uh, classical apologists, and uh, it, it answers the the, the twelve uh, different types of questions six six for uh, um, uh, what it puts forward and then what it uh, responds to, and so uh, uh, interested to see uh, what others have have thought of the classical approach uh, and and the presentation here. Uh, but uh, once we come back for chapter seven, uh, which is the uh, uh, end to our coverage of uh, looking at specifically the classical apologists, uh, we look at kind of the limits of reason and uh, uh, critique of, of, uh, of their uh, point of view. And uh, we'll see what our authors have to say in the first uh, critical look at uh, one of the uh, apostolic or the, the uh, apologetic uh, methods here. Uh, as we as we go forward then so hopefully you'll join us next time and uh, and continue to enjoy all the short clips that are available uh, uh, weekly that come out uh, from these episodes and uh, you can also find them on cavesthecross.com so uh, as always we thank you for joining us and we will see you next time see you next time